Welcome to the Law and Justice Podcast brought to you by Project K. If you are interested in human rights, women empowerment, sustainability, and justice, then stay tuned and join my discussion. Today, I'm going to discuss the interrelations between human rights and the environment. I believe this discussion will be of great help to learners, especially who are studying international human rights law or international environmental law. concerns with human rights, health, and environmental protection have expanded considerably in the past several decades. In response, the international community has created a vast array of international legal instruments, specialized organs, and agencies at the global and regional levels to respond to identified problems in each of the three areas. Often, these have seemed to develop in isolation from one another, yet the links between human rights, health, and environmental protection were apparent at least from the first international conference on the human environment held in Stockholm in 1972. Indeed, health has seemed to be the subject that bridges the two fields of environmental protection and human rights. At the Stockholm concluding session, the participants proclaimed that man is both creator and molder of his environment, which gives him physical sustenance and offers him the opportunity for intellectual, moral, social, and spiritual growth. Both aspects of man's environment, the natural and the man-made, are essential to his well-being and to the enjoyment of basic human rights, even the right to life itself. Principle 1 of the Stockholm Declaration established a foundation for linking human rights, health, and environmental protection, declaring that man has the fundamental right to freedom, equality, and adequate conditions of life in an environment of equality that promise a life of dignity and well-being. In Resolution 45-94, the UN General Assembly recalled the language of Stockholm, stating that all individuals are entitled to live in an environment adequate for their health and well-being. The resolution called for enhanced efforts towards ensuring a better and healthier environment. The preamble to the Paris Agreement includes an acknowledgement that climate change is a common concern of humankind and that parties should, when taking action to address climate change, respect, promote, and consider their respective obligations on human rights. The 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change is relevant to human rights law, not for what it says about human rights, which is next to nothing, but for what it says about the need to address the risk of climate change taking global temperature above 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. In fact, climate change is plainly a threat to human rights. The adoption and the rapid entry into force of the Paris Agreement constituted a significant step towards a global response to the climate crisis. The Paris Agreement establishes the first international framework that commits states to take steps to keep temperature increase below 1.5 degrees Celsius, under which all states have agreed to take climate action on the basis of equity. Significantly, the Paris Agreement also placed climate action in the context of efforts to achieve sustainable development, stressing the relationship between climate action and poverty eradication. 
It further affirms the need for government to respect and promote human rights, including the right of indigenous people, gender equality, and the empowerment of women, the fundamental priority of safeguarding food security, the importance of public participation and access to information, the imperatives of a just transition and creation of decent work, and the importance of securing ecosystems integrity. These provisions are significant given the interlinkages between climate change and the protection of human rights. The international community has long recognized that climate change poses a considerable threat to the realization of human rights, especially the rights of vulnerable people and local communities and the rights of indigenous people. A number of the international legal standards developed by the Council of Europe, notably including the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Social Charter, and the Berne Convention on the Conservation of European Wildlife and Natural Habitats, have successfully been invoked to help make progress on environmental issues. The European Code of Human Rights has so far ruled on some 300 environment-related cases, applying concepts such as the right to life, free speech, and family life to a wide range of issues, including pollution, man-made or natural disasters, and access to environmental information. The European Convention on Human Rights has also been used by campaigners at the national level to encourage governments to take further steps to tackle climate change and the degradation of the natural environment. Successive Council of Europe presidencies and various other parts of the organization have called for existing legal tools to be further strengthened in order to help European states deal with the considerable environmental challenges that we all face. The European Code of Human Rights has formally asked 33 Council of Europe member states to respond to a climate change lawsuit brought by six young campaigners from Portugal. The case concerns greenhouse gas emissions which are believed to be contributing to global warming and manifested among other things by heat waves which would impact the living conditions and health of the applicants. The applicants aged between 8 and 21 years claim that the first fires that Portugal has experienced every year for several years in particular since 2017 are the direct result of global warming to which such emissions have contributed. The court will examine the admissibility and the merits of the case in light of the parties' observations. Although the European Convention on Human Rights does not contain an explicit right to a clean and quiet environment, the court has developed its case laws and established that when an individual is directly and seriously affected by noise or other pollution, an issue may arise under the convention. The court has underlined that serious damage to the environment can affect the well-being of individuals. Also, states are not only obliged to refrain from arbitrary interference but also have the positive obligation to adopt 
reasonable and adequate measures to protect the rights of the individuals. Environmental issues have been examined by the court in a large number of cases concerning various human rights. The new factor on environment focuses on some major issues, including ending and preventing environmental pollution and disasters, environmental risks, access to information and compensation, protection from noise and air pollution, access to courts, freedom of expression, and property rights. It sets out several examples of measures adopted and reported by states in the context of the execution of the European Court judgments in order to safeguard and protect one's living environment. On 9 August 2019, the Human Rights Committee issued a landmark decision in the case Pertillo Caceres v. Paraguay. For the first time in its jurisprudence, It explicitly recognized that a state's failure to take action against environmental harm can violate its obligations to protect the rights to life and to private and family life under Article 6 and 17 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights ICCPR. This is not only a landmark decision for the SRC, it's also the first decision from a United Nations treaty body which clearly addresses and consolidates a link which until now had essentially been developed in the jurisprudence of regional human rights courts. The decision is also noteworthy because it relies on the recently developed General Comment No. 36 on the right to life. This includes two specific paragraphs on the relationship between human rights and the environment. Importantly, on October 24, 2019, SRC rendered another landmark decision in the case Taishata versus New Zealand, which confirmed the potential of DC 36 to address matters related to climate change, displacement, and the right to life. Between environmental harm and the rights to life and to private and family life has long been established, especially by regional courts. Generally speaking, environmental protection and general human rights have been linked to two main legal prisms, including integrity and cultural. Before Portillo, Cassidy's, and Teixeira, the SRC had mainly focused on the cultural connection, with a few cases relating to integrity faring less well. The SRC first adopted the right to life as a prism through which to assess the environmental dimension of the ICCPR in cases concerning the risk presented by nuclear tests or waste. However, those were considered inadmissible. In the early 1990s, the link between environmental protection and the human rights found expression through a second prism, the right to the enjoyment of one's culture, which is under Article 27 of the ICCPR. The committee considered that the cultural ties between certain minority groups and their natural environment represented by their lands and natural resources, deserve protection. In numerous cases, such complaints were ultimately deemed inadmissible or rejected at the marriage states. Yet, 
This body of practice helps clarify the two main legal prisms through which the connection between human rights and the environmental protection had been approached at the universal and regional levels. The case law of the European Court of Human Rights followed mostly, although not solely, the first prism, while until the advisory opinion on human rights and the environment, the ICOMHR and the ICTHR had mainly relied on the second. The African Commission developed and referred to both, possibly because of the focus of its constitutive instrument, the African Charter on both individual and people's rights. In particular, Cassidy's and Teixeira, the HRC has for the first time concretely elaborated on the link between the right to life and environmental protection as understood at the universal level. It has thereby built bridges not only between these two imperatives but also between the regional and the universal levels and between theory as expounded in ZC Norm 36 and the actual practice. On the latter, the combination of paragraph 26 and paragraph 62 of the ZC Norm 36 as the drafters intended has firmly established that environmental degradation constitutes a direct and most pressing and serious threat to the present and future enjoyment of the right to life with dignity. For this region, the preservation and protection of the environment constitute inherent conditions and components of the obligation to respect, protect, and ensure the right to life requiring states to adopt appropriate measures against harm, pollution, and climate change caused by both public and private sectors. Through their reliance on this in Norm 36, as well as on the regional case law, Portillo Casares and Tasha does unveil the potential of the right to life as a means for expanding the environmental dimension not only of the ICCPR but also of other international instruments. The European Convention on Human Rights does not enshrine any right to a healthy environment as such. The European Code of Human Rights has been called upon to develop its case laws in environmental matters on account of the fact that the exercise of certain convention rights may be undermined by the existence of harm to the environment and exposure to environmental risk. The case laws include dangerous industrial activities, dumping of toxic waste, exposure to nuclear radiation, greenhouse gas emissions, industrial emissions and health, natural disasters, passive smoking in detention, access to coal, dam construction threatening archaeological sites, environmental risk and access to information, high voltage power line, industrial pollution, mobile phone antennas, noise pollution, neighboring noise, road traffic noise, wind turbines and wind energy firms, industrial noise pollution, rail traffic, emissions from diesel vehicles, waste collection, management, treatment and disposal, urban development, auto supply contamination, failure to enforce final judicial decisions and more. Please check out the podcast details where I have added the link of the cases. Nearly all global and regional 
human rights bodies have considered the link between environmental degradation and internationally granted human rights, including the right to health. In nearly every instance, the complaints brought have not been based upon a specific right to a safe and environmentally sound environment, but rather upon rights to life, property, health, information, family, and home life. Underlying the complaints, however, are instances of pollution, deforestation, water pollution, and other types of environmental harms. These cases demonstrate several benefits of using one or more of the rights-based approaches to environmental and health problems. First, the emphasis on rights of information, participation, and access to justice encourages an integration of democratic values and promotion of the rule of law in broad-based structures of governance. Experience shows better environmental decision-making and implementation when those affected are informed and participate in the process. The legitimacy of the decisions exercises a pull towards compliance with the measures adopted. Another benefit of a rights-based approach is the existence of international petition procedures that allow those harmed to bring international pressure to bear when governments lack the will to prevent or halt severe pollution that threaten human health and well-being. In many instances, petitioners have been afforded redress and governments have taken measures to remedy the violations. In other instances, however, the problem appears to be the result of a combination of governmental lack of capacity and lack of political will. The pollution may be caused by powerful enterprises whose business and investments are important to the state or the state may have inadequate monitoring systems to ensure air or water quality. Even in these instances, however, petition procedures can help to identify problems and encourage a dialogue to resolve them, including by the provision of technical assistance. Given the extensive treaty provisions and case laws that use existing human rights, it may be asked whether or not a recognized and explicit right to a health, safe, and environmentally sound environment would add to the existing protections and further the international values represented by environmental law and human rights. The primary argument in favor of social rights is that it delivers the entire spectrum of environmental issues to a place as a fundamental value of society to a label equal to other rights and superior to ordinary legislation. In the absence of granted environmental rights, constitutionally protected property rights may be given automatic priority instead of balanced against health and environmental concerns. Other rights may similarly be invoked to strike down environmental and health measures that are not themselves right-based. Even where there is a granted right to environment, it still must be balanced against other rights should there be a conflict. In a few instances, a specific priority may be established by law. The Constitution of Ecuador, Article 19, provides, for example, the right to live in an environment free from contamination. The Constitution invests the state with responsibility for ensuring the enjoyment of the 
right and for establishing by law such restrictions on other rights and freedoms as are necessary to protect the environment. Other states may reconcile conflicts through other balances, but including the right makes it possible to do so. In sum, the links between human rights, health, and environmental protection are today well established in international law, accepted by states in agreements and implemented in practice. Indian courts have made great contribution on this issue. Article 21 of the Indian Constitution provides that no person shall be deprived of his life or personal liberty except according to procedures established by law. Despite being framed as a negative right, the Supreme Court expands it in two ways. First, any laws affecting personal liberty should be reasonable, fair, and just. Second, the court recognized several liberties implied by Article 21. It's by the latter, the court interprets the right to the life to encompass the right to a healthy environment. In Shubhash Kumar, one of the earliest cases on this issue, the court opined that the right to life included the right to enjoyment of pollution-free water. Later, the court in Belar Citizen found that tenaries, by discharging untreated affluence into agricultural areas and water supplies, violated citizens' right to life. The court ordered 900 tanneries in Tamil Nadu to compensate the victims and charge them for restoration cost. In reaching its conclusion, the court relied on two international environmental principles, the precautionary principle and the polytropist principle. The court defined the precautionary principle to mean that a state must anticipate and prevent the cause of environmental degradation, lack of scientific certainty cannot be used to postpone preventive measures, and the onus of proof is on the polluters to show their actions are environmentally benign. The court defined the polluter pest principles to mean that polluting industries are liable to pay both damages to the victims and environment restoration costs. The court considered these principles integral to an interpretation of the constitutional right to life and incorporated them in India's constitutional jurisprudence. In India Council for Environmental Legal Action, the court ruled that the failure on the part of the government to control industrial emissions of toxic chemicals constitutes a violation of the right to life. In this case, several chemical plants were established in Bakery without properly obtaining permissions and clearances and had failed to obey previous court orders. In the judgment, the court noted that if the agency's consent failed to perform their statutory duties and their action was jeopardizing the citizens' right to life. It was the duty of the court to intervene and direct them to perform their duties. Therefore, the court ordered agencies concerned to exercise controls over industries, carried out remedial measures, and ordered the closure of the plants and charged them with cleanup costs. The case shows the court's attempt to enhance accountability of state officers by compelling them to fulfill their statutory mandates. In T. Damodar Rao, the court held that the respondents attempt to build houses in the area according to development plan designated for recreational use was contrary to the right to life provision. 
the court noted that it is the legitimate duty of the court as the enforcing organs of their constitutional objectives to forbid all action of the state and citizen from upsetting the environmental balance. Thus, the court prohibited the respondents to use the land for residential purposes as it would disrupt environmental balance. This case suggests that actions which did not directly affect physical health but merely disturb environmental balance may constitute a violation of the right to life. Following India, the Supreme Court of Pakistan in West Pakistan Salt Miners case found a violation of right to life where community water supplies were at risk of being polluted by nearby mining. In the judgment, the court highlighted the importance of water, especially in hilly areas where access to water is limited. The court then concluded that the right to unpolluted water is the right to life itself. Therefore, the court ordered the respondent to take necessary measures to prevent drinking water from being polluted, including relocation of the mines. The court also appointed a commission to monitor the implementation of the court order and prohibited agencies from granting new mining licenses or renewing the old one. What is remarkable about this case is that the court enforced the right to life to prevent environmental damage, the petitioner merely claimed that if responded miners were allowed to continue their activities, water supplies in that area would be contaminated. Another noteworthy aspect was the court's willingness to include the right to unpolluted water within the purview of the right to life. In Africa, Tanzania takes the lead on this issue. The High Court ordered the City Council to cease dumping as it created air pollution and caused respiratory problems to nearby residents. The Council sought several extensions to comply with the order. However, the Court rejected the Council's petitions on the ground that garbage dumping threatened public health and thus violating constitutional right to life. Colombian courts found a violation of citizens' right to life when industry released toxic fumes from an open pit, thus ordering the industry to remove the waste and compensate affected persons. Similar expansive interpretations has also been followed by Nepal, Bangladesh, Ecuador, and Costa Rica. Considering universal recognition of the right to life as a fundamental right, the right to life could constitute an alternative tool to protect environment, especially when a country lacks a specific provision regarding the right to a healthy environment or a comprehensive environmental regu regulatory regime. Nonetheless, the effectiveness of the vindication of right to life to protect environment depends largely on a strong, independent, and sympathetic judiciary. This should be coupled with liberal standing rules or citizens' serve provision to enable people to actively contribute to environmental protection. This is the case in India where the largest jurisprudence concerning environment aspect of the right to life has been generated. As seen in these cases, the courts have found violations of right to life when the release of pollutants have a direct effect on human health and when agencies involved fail to perform their duties to protect public health and the environment. In addition, 
The right to life can be invoked to prevent environmental damage that could harm public health, as in Damada Rao and West Pakistan salt miners. Also, a broad range of remedies has been provided. Course ordered polluters to pay for the damages done to cease polluting activities, to shut down their businesses, or to relocate their operations. Course also order governments to properly enforce the regulations to impose penalties on polluters to deny license etc. The cases under domestic and international courts show a bold stance taken by national and international courts and the emphasis they lay on the prediction of public health and environment over economics caused implications of adjustment in favor of victims. Courts also from all jurisdictions could surely follow the reasoning and rational of the judgments by the European Court of Human Rights in order to draw similar interpretations on human rights, especially the right to life and the environment. Thank you for listening. Let me know your thoughts and feedbacks on today's discussion. To listen all my pieces, follow and subscribe to my podcast. To listen a new episode every Sunday, stay tuned and raise your voice against injustice anywhere.